Anyway, so we're, we're continuing on now with this, this, this sermon. We've been going through the book of Acts, and I want to start with kind of something that, that happens in the Bible a lot, and we come to certain parts of this, we kind of skip over it. You know, Jesus says something sometimes that makes us a little uncomfortable, and we say, he didn't really mean that, and we just kind of skip over the passage, and I'm going to stop on one of those that I've always skipped over, because Jesus really means what he says, and he says what he means, and so... I want to comment on this one point before we get to our, our story in Acts, because it's important for us to know this. And it's not taught very much. It was never taught to me. Now, I'm going to put this together in a little tiny couplet of a rhyme for you, so it's easy to remember. And that goes like this. Saved does not mean safe. Jesus expects us to grow. We are held accountable for what we do with what we know. Now, the reason I made that rhyme is because it just came out that way. But my grandfather Christ, by the way, uh, had a talent or a knack or an annoying habit of rhyming. He would like rhyme things every now and then. And like, people think he was doing it deliberately, and he wasn't. He could like rhyme four sentences together without even knowing he did it. When that happened, I kind of thought, oh, grandfather be proud. So there's my little ode to my grandfather. Uh, but this is true. This is true that we're supposed to grow. We're supposed to change. Jesus doesn't save us to leave us. Jesus, Jesus saves us to change us. And if we don't change, Jesus is not happy about that. And in fact, we need to change, basically, in relationship to what we know to change. God doesn't expect us to change in ways we don't understand. But what he's told us to do, we need to do. And it's supposed to change us. And there's a couple times in the Bible, actually several, where Jesus specifically talks about this point. I'm going to give us two today. But he's talking to his disciples. Now watch, because he's saying the servant and master... And understand that he's our master, and so he's talking about servants. He's talking about you. He's talking about me, right? He says this, The servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. He says, I'm not going to just beat you. He says, the master beats you many times, and it leaves a mark you know, when, when, when the discipline comes. But he who did not know and yet committed those things deserving stripes shall be beaten with a few. I'm going to come back to that. For her, everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of the him, they will ask even more. Have you ever heard the expression, to whom much is given, much is expected? That's what this verse is. That's where that comes from. Jesus is saying, look, if you know what to do and you don't do it, it's much worse than someone who didn't know what to do and did it. Makes sense, right? Parents, do you ever have a situation where your, your child willfully disobeys you? It's different, isn't it? When a child does something that you never told them not to do, but they did it, it makes you angry, you're still going to give them a little bit of grace there because they didn't know. They didn't know any better, right? You'll still maybe discipline them, but it's not a big, hard discipline. It's just you're disciplining them so they remember it so they don't do it next time. You know, don't play near the road. But if you tell them specifically, hey, don't play with fire, and you catch them out there with a book of matches and the, and, and the gasoline can for the, for the lawnmower playing with fire, it's a different kind of a thing, isn't it? You go in there hot and heavy because they deliberately disobey what you told them to do. This is what Jesus is talking about. I don't know if this was a rule in your house or this is a rule in your house, but I promise you it was a rule in my house. In fact, my father uh, had a couple cute little sayings he would give me in these kind of situations. I think I told this story before about how 
one time I was in Gimbel's department store, those of you who remember what that is, in their book department area, and, they, and these kids had come by, and there was like toys that went along with some books. They ripped them all open. They're sitting there playing on the floor with them, you know, and they're running around careening into things. I went, oh, and I go running over to play. I was, you know, maybe four or five, and my dad caught me by the collar before I got two steps, you know, and pulled me back. I said, Dad, what, what? No, we don't do that in a bookstore. Like, the second most holy place on earth for my father was a bookstore just behind the church. And he said, we don't do that in a bookstore. We behave in a bookstore. I said, but Dad, look, they're doing it. And his response was, they're not my kids. He didn't care, right? My kid I have a higher expectation of. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, they're not my kids. You're my kid. I expect more out of you. We counsel sometimes with couples, you know, before we would marry them. And uh, we don't do this very much anymore, but we used to do marriages over at the Sunset Room. Everybody we counseled with, everybody we married, uh, every one of them was, uh, come on, right? You guys can hear me? Okay. What was, was living together, you know? And we would tell them, you know, you shouldn't be living together. And we would show them the statistics, 75% people who live together before they get married, if they do get married, uh, that marriage doesn't last, 75%. You're actually making your statistics worse. Um, and that was a difficult you know, thing to say to people who didn't necessarily believe in God. But then I'm talking to Christian kids sometimes, saying, well, we're going to go live together. So what are you doing? And they say, well, everybody's doing it, which is basically my argument in gimbals, right? And I can just see Jesus grabbing them by the collar. They're not my kid. And I say, you know, everybody might do it, and you can do it too, but I want you to understand, you are going to be held accountable more for doing it. And they are because they don't know better than you do. And I don't just mean when you get to heaven and you're judged. I mean, you're going to be held accountable here. We reap what we sow. And he says, you know what? If somebody doesn't know any better and they do it, that's one thing. But my kids know better. We are held accountable to what we know. And that's really important because I don't think we view it that way. In our quest for knowledge, you need to understand you're held accountable for all the knowledge that you get about God. And here's the second time, here's another time, I shouldn't say second, but another time Jesus gives you the same idea here. Uh, this comes at the end of a parable. And I think it's a parable everybody knows because it's kind of a famous parable. It's something called the parable of the talents. Right? Real quick, in case you aren't up on that one, what happens is Jesus tells a story about a master or a king who goes away. And it's really him, right? it's symbolic of him. And he takes three servants and he gives them something according to their abilities. So, he actually gives them something called talent. Now, talent in the Bible was a measurement. It's a weight. So a talent is like, uh, if you picture a scale, and you have gold coins on one side, the talent would make sure that gold coins equal the same weight. Everything went by weight. So he gives ten talents, with picture like bags of gold, to this one guy, because he had a lot of abilities, I guess. And he says, here, work with this while I'm gone. He gives another guy five, and he gives the last guy one, because he doesn't think very highly of his abilities, but he's giving him no chance. You know, I don't, you're here, have one. So he goes away and comes back in a couple years, and the guy who had 10 worked with them, and he had 10 more. So now he has 20. And, and the master says to him, hey, well done, faithful servant. This was a test. Because you've been faithful in a few things, I am now going to make you a ruler over many. I'm going to make you a, a ruler over a city. He goes to the second guy who he gave five to, and he'd gotten five more. And Jesus says to him the same thing, identically what he said to the first guy, same reward. Because you've been faithful in a little... I'm going to give you a lot. And he goes to the last guy. The guy who didn't have much abilities, didn't have much hope for, I guess, gave him one. And that guy says something interesting. He says, well, I didn't do anything with it. And then he says, because I know you are an unfair person. Which is crazy that a, master, that a slave would say that to a master. 
He said, you're used to collecting things that you don't deserve. The way he puts it is, you're used to reaping where you do not sow. And so I was afraid of making a mistake, which was a lie. He wasn't afraid. He was bitter. He said, so I just buried it in the ground. So basically what he said was, I wasn't going to let you earn anything off of my work. I took yours, I put it in the ground, here you go. That's all you get. What you gave me is what you get. I'm out. I'm not letting you make more money off of me. But here's the thing that's really kind of frustrating about that servant. He doesn't see how generous this master is because the guy he gave 10 bags of gold to who made 10 more, the master doesn't take that back. He said, cool. Now I'm going to make you a, a ruler over a city. You can keep the 20. Same thing he does with the guy who's five. This master is not the guy that he portrays at all. He's a generous master. He says, you keep all that. And now I'm going to give you even more. Right? This master is Jesus. He's, he's not bitter. He's, he's, he doesn't take things that don't belong to him. He's generous. He's giving. He gave this guy an opportunity in, in bitterness. He hit it in the ground. But then Jesus says something interesting. At the end of it, he says, take that one. He kicks that guy out. He throws him out. But take that one talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Why? That doesn't even seem fair to me. Give it to the guy who only has five. Why, why are we giving this guy who only has twenty? Give it to this guy. Let's even the wealth a little bit. Jesus is no communist, let me tell you that. That is not a principle of heaven. He says, give it to him who has ten talents. And then he says, this is why. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken He's talking about us. If I give you something, you're responsible for what I gave you. So Jesus, in his mercy, will take it back off you. You're doing nothing with it. Otherwise, you'll be judged by it. You understand what Jesus is saying? Have you ever met somebody who's kind of been on a path in their Christian life, their spiritual life, and they'll even use words like, I don't know. I used to be on fire for a while. I used to really feel it. Now I just don't, you know. I don't know what's going on. I don't even know what I believe in. They're kind of backing off. They don't have that faith that you had when they first, you know, learned how to, how to live with Jesus. They're kind of backing off a little bit. Why? I used to think people just lost their faith, but now I'm starting to think Jesus goes and takes it away. Why would I burden you with this then? You're not doing anything with it. What do you know? What has God revealed to you? Here's the problem with Americans. We come from a very rich country. I'm not just talking financially. I'm talking from an information standpoint. Did you know that you could go on the internet and search for something besides cat videos? You can. You can actually do that. You can actually get videos that have nothing to do with cats or dogs. You can actually get videos of really good biblical teaching. If you feel underfed here, go hear a good preacher. They're on there. They're everywhere. You can so easily get that. And a lot of us have. A lot of us have heard some really good teaching in our lives. What have you done with it? What have you done with what you know? Because you will be held accountable for that. Now, I have a lot of people I know, they like go to every Bible study available to them. They're like, they look through it like it's a catalog. Oh, this Bible study looks interesting this, this time. I'll go there, you know. And then when that one finishes up, they look again. Oh, I'll go over here for that Bible study. And I go to this church to hear that sermon. I go online to hear that sermon. I turn on my radio in the morning because I like to listen to this sermon. And all they're doing is getting a bunch of knowledge about God and doing nothing with it. We're like those squirrels who keep jamming things into our cheeks instead of eating and swallowing. And Jesus says, you have much, so now I expect much. How are you doing with that? 
Are we following what we know? I have people sometimes tell me, man, I wish we could go deeper in Scripture. I like your stories and everything, but I wish we could just go deeper in Scripture. And I always think, well, well you know, first of all, thanks for liking my stories, but do you sh are you sure you want that? Are you sure you want more? How are you doing with what you have? A lot of times we just want to rush and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and never do anything about it. It's like, you know, subscribe to Men's Health Magazine every month, how to get six-pack abs. Have a whole stack of how to get six-pack abs. Do I have six-pack abs? No, because the problem is you actually have to do it. You can't just collect it. We're collectors in America, and we will be judged for that. So now, how is this tied into um, the book of Acts? I'm going to tell you today about a story of a guy named Cornelius. Here's a guy who did not know a whole lot because he didn't have an opportunity to, and yet what he knew he did something with. So here it comes. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Historical note, this would have been the, the what they call century or, or the group of 100 men uh, who would have re re reported to Pontius Pilate. That's where he was. So this, was, this would have been when Pontius Pilate needed something done, this is the guy he would call. Um, he was a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. And he gave many alms to Jewish people. It's like giving to Jewish charities and trying to take care of the poor, the Jewish poor. And pray to God continually. Who is this guy? Because there's something you need to know about a centurion, okay? Uh, in the centurion army, centurion means that he had 100 men report to him. Now, that's just soldiers. There's a supplementary force much larger than that. But he had 100 soldiers who reported to him. This was the backbone of the Roman army. If they wanted something done, they sent in 100 soldiers. The century. They would send in that centurion with his men. And they could take a they could take a whole kingdom with just that. They were considered a fighting force and a small army by themselves. Now, they would put many of those together when they went these big sieges, you know, to, to fight off, you know, some of the Persians or something. But those were always made up of these groups of hundred, and they were ruled by the centurion. Now the guy who ran the whole thing, the general, that could have been a political appointee. You know, his family could have bought his way in there. And he's sitting up on the hillside somewhere playing war games, right? But the guys who were actually doing the fight, that was not an appointed position. You earned that. You did not get appointed to become a centurion. You earned it. Now, the Roman army and the Roman empire was ruthless. To become a centurion, you were ruthless. You had to be. I promise you, this guy, we don't know anything about him, he did some things he regrets. He did some things we might even call evil because they did some stuff. And they just did it without question. The Romans soldier obeyed. But yet we hear that he and all of his household is serving the God Jehovah, which is impossible because he's a Gentile. He can't really serve Jehovah. He cannot go into the sanctuary and have the priest offer something for his redemption. He, he can't. He can get there's a, they have actually a special place where the Gentiles could sit and listen, but they weren't allowed to come in contact with any of the people who had been cleansed because Gentiles were considered unclean. Even to touch one of them was considered unclean. And now you can't participate in the Jewish, uh, uh, in the, the different kind of Jewish redemption and some of their ceremonies. So they kind of had to stay off there in his plaza. That's as close as he could get to the teaching of Jehovah. And yet for some reason, this man was following the teachings of Jehovah better than many Jews. Why? I believe we've seen this guy before. Now, this is a, I got to tell you, this is a pet theory of mine. I've got no scripture to back it up. I've got no history to back it up. But it's a perfect theory 
because there's no scripture can prove it wrong, there's no history that can prove it wrong either, right? So it's one of these theories that just is, believe it or not. But I believe we've seen this guy. I believe this guy shows up in the Gospels. Now, the Gospel of Luke, and since Luke wrote Acts, that's where I'm going to, Luke tells us about Jesus' encounter with a centurion, and the description seems an awful lot the same. I'm going to jump over to Luke for a second. This is Luke chapter 7. Now, Jesus went to Capernaum, and there was, there was a centurion slave, by the way, almost certainly Jewish, who was highly regarded by the centurion, and he was sick and about to die. What that means is they brought in doctors, and all the best doctors in Rome have taken a look at this guy and said, yeah, there's nothing we can do. He's going to die. So it's over. Medical science is checked out. And the centurion hears about Jesus coming through. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders. He himself didn't go. He got leaders of the area to go to Jesus and ask him to come to save the life of the slave. Not his son, not his daughter, a slave, probably a Jewish slave. He was that concerned about him. And when these Jewish elders came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, look, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. This is what we always do when we come to God, right? When we want to pray for healing, we always start with the qualifications of the person who's getting the healing, you know, like, like anybody deserves a healing. It isn't true, right? When God does a miracle, he's doing something we don't deserve. That's the whole point of it, right? Uh, so anyway, so that's, um, uh, can I say, you need to tell them we're going to they're actually letting the kids out of the room. You can tell it's going to be a little while. I mean, not an hour, but it's going to be a little while. We're not here ready. I spent too much time talking about the church. Sorry. Uh, anyway, so, and we can't edit that out live. Sorry, you can edit it out of the final. Uh, okay, so, so, so they, they said, you know, you should do this because he's a good man. He loves our nation. Watch this. It was he who built our synagogue. He actually was responsible for putting a synagogue there. I don't think he personally went there and moved bricks. I think that he had a lot of sway with the court. And when they were trying to put the synagogue there together, I think they, they, they ran some opposition from the Roman rulers. And I think he stepped up and spoke on their behalf and let them have the synagogue. So that, that's, uh, this guy deserves it, basically. So Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far away, the centurion sent friends to meet him. So what happened was they were walking there. Some runner went ahead saying, hey, good news. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Right? And so the centurion says, oh, oh, oh. And he sends some runners out with a message. And when they get there, they relay this message to Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself further. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Hey, there's stuff that's happened in my house that Jesus shouldn't see. I'm a sinner, and I'm a Gentile, and I know who I am. You should not come here because I know who you are. Now, why would he send somebody for Jesus if he doesn't want him to come to his house? It wasn't the purpose of saying, well, he goes on and explains. Now, what he's about to explain, what he's figured out, nobody in the Bible has figured out. What he's going to ask Jesus to do is perform a miracle that's never been seen in the scriptures, ever. In fact, Jesus hasn't done it yet himself, but he's just put it together from what he knows. Watch this. He says, you need to just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And here's how I know that, he says. I'm a man who lives with authority. I'm under authority, and I have people under me. I understand authority. I've got that. That's how the whole Roman army works. He says, in fact, if I say to a soldier, go, he goes. If I say to another one, come here, he comes. And if I tell my slave, you go do this, guess what? My slave goes and does that. And the way I have complete authority over the soldiers in my command, you have authority over heaven and earth, and all sickness will obey you. All you have to do is say, go, and it's gone. 
And I love this next line. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. That's like Jesus was shocked. Another way to put this is, when Jesus heard this, his mouth dropped open. And here's what I love about that. I know God loves surprises. He does. I mean, I don't know if you've been a Christian long enough, you'll know God surprises you. And he seems to love to do it. He catches you off guard with these little surprises. I don't know why God just loves surprising us. What I love is the fact he wanted to surprise his own son. Because he didn't tell him this was coming. When Jesus was praying in the morning, you know, and the Holy Spirit was telling him what to do today, you know, he said, well, and he was kind of telling him, but don't tell him about this. I want him to be surprised. God just loves surprising. Even Jesus sometimes got surprised by what happened. He marveled. He turns to the crowd and says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. There's not a Jew that has faith like this. And he sends them back, and when they get there, the servants you. So the, the man was absolutely right. Jesus had that kind of authority. So now coming back to Acts, right? So remember how they describe the centurion, because here's what happens next. So about the ninth hour, so it's early afternoon, maybe about three o'clock, he was praying, and he clearly saw a vision of an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. Now this is great, because I said last week, what's wonderful about the New Testament in Acts is when angels appear to the, the disciples, they, they act like it's no big deal. You know, angel appears to Philip and says, I need you to go here. He goes, yes, Lord, and he goes. Right? And appears to Ananias and says, okay, I'll do that. It's like no big deal to them. Everybody else in the Bible freaks out when an angel shows up, but, but not the disciples. They're like, okay, cool. Yeah, hey, Gabriel, good to see you again. You know, it's like no big deal to these guys. But that's not who Cornelius is. He still shakes in his boots. And fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what is it, Lord? You know, this angel just appeared. Cornelius is freaking out. And this this hard battle, you know, hardened you know, general, he's like, I, I, I don't know what to do now. An angel's talking, right? And the angel says, no, it's okay. Look, your prayers and alms and the things you've given away have ascended as a memorial before God. Some translations translate this. It's come up before God like sweet incense. What you've done with your life is so noticed by heaven that God looks at you and smells. He goes, that Cornelius, he's living right. And it's like, that's an amazing thing to me. Well, I don't know, I don't think my life does that. So last night, I think my life probably goes up before heaven a little like a combination between Lysol and dog food. You know, I don't know if you ever smelt that. Those of you who have dogs you know what I'm talking about. You know, there's a little sun, you know, no matter how well you clean, there's always that trace, right? That's how I think my stuff comes up before heaven. But, but Cornelius was just so great that, you know, it comes up as a sweet incense. And so then the angel says this, look, go dispatch some men to Joppa. Send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. And he's staying with a tanner named Simon. They need new names in the, in the New Testament. There's too many Simons running around. And, and this tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. So he's basically giving him a Google map to this guy's house. You need to go get Peter. Now, we're not going to get there today, but just so you know, um, Peter, right now, won't see a Gentile. As the angel speaking these words to Cornelius, Peter would never, ever come to a Gentile's house because he's still a Jew. He's living by the cleanliness laws. That doesn't matter to God because he knows he's going to move Peter's heart. So he does. He said, "You need to go send some people to this guy named Peter." And so when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned. Watch this: two of his servants and a devout soldier. This guy was like holding Bible studies and teaching his soldiers about Jehovah. He actually has has converted one of the the, the soldiers as well. This is like you know, servants. Sure, you get that. But he's actually reaching out to his soldiers. 
He's stepping up for God. He's like, you know, you've got to read about this. And I believe that's because he knew who God was. Because he saw the evidence of it. He said, I'm pretty sure I know who this guy is with his authority. And then when he saw that servant healed that all the doctors said were going to die, he went, okay, now I know for sure who he is. Right? So I just think he knew. And so he was going to get as close to God as he possibly could. So he sent that to soldier, and they were who had personal attendants, and after he explained everything, he sent them to Joppa. Now, we're not going to get here, but I just want to show you how they describe him when they show up in Joppa. This is how they'll describe him. They'll say, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. If that doesn't sound like the guy from the Gospel of Luke, I don't know what else to say. To me, that's like, Everything but Cornelius, right? I mean, that's that's the same guy. He's well spoken of by the entire Jews. The Jewish elders were speaking of this guy. That's why I think he's the same guy. Okay, whether it is or not, here's the point. We have a Gentile who could only worship God from afar, and yet he was called righteous and God-fearing. How is that possible? How is it possible someone who doesn't have the benefit that we have of having a written Bible that tells us all the truth? has pieced together who Jehovah is. How did he do that? It's simple. Following what you know will lead you to the footsteps of heaven. And the Bible tells us this. It says if you just follow what you know, you'll come to God. You'll have no choice. If you're honestly following God, then what you know is going to lead you right to the footsteps of heaven. This man was able to figure out his salvation just by following what he knew. What are we doing with what we know? Now, what kind of a thing could he have looked at that would have helped him piece this together? Well, one thing may have been Psalm 19. Because this is what the psalmist says. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth praise. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there's no word, there's no voice that gets heard. Hey, look at that. He can rhyme. But you don't need it, right? Because it, the whole thing is just declaring the, the glory of God. He said, if you're not understanding that the entire heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says, you're not paying attention. There's a line going out through all the earth, and the utterance to the end of the world. It's rising like the sun from one end of the heavens to the other. And it goes from the whole circuit and makes sure there's nothing hidden from the heat. He says, in the same way the sun goes up and across the sky and down and illuminates everything, God's word is there. And it's illuminating everything. If you're paying attention, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. People think they know what they're talking about, become stupid. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In fact, by your law, your servants warn. In keeping the law, there's a great reward. You keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let that sin not roll over me. Let me be blameless before you. And then he finishes it by saying this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. That's who Cornelius was. He just put it all together by watching the stars like the psalmist did. But what he did was he followed what he knew and it led him to God. If you find God and keep seeking, eventually Jesus finds you. Because that's what happens here. God says, time to bring him in. It is time to bring him in. What are we doing with what God's shown us? Has, has our obedience to what he has told us and what he has taught us brought us closer to God? 
Or do we have a lot of knowledge stuffed in our head somewhere that really doesn't matter to our lives because we're not doing it anyway? And we come to God and say, you know what? I'm having a problem in my life. And I really need you to, to help me with this problem. I don't need you to fix it. I need wisdom. I need you to give me wisdom on how to fix this problem. I don't know if you've ever prayed that prayer. I seem to pray every week. I need help. And a lot of times God's saying, I already told you what to do. How about doing that? And we'll move on to stage two. But God, that has nothing to do with my problem. I don't think you understand. He says, here's the problem. You're not doing what I told you to do. This thing that you consider a problem is nothing compared to the problem if you're not doing what I told you to do. We need to be doers of the word and not hearers of the word. We will be held accountable for what we know. We know why. God probably has already given you the answer to your problem, but you're so busy trying to figure out, no, that's not right, give me the right, that we're not listening to what God said. The way to worship God is this. God speaks revelation. You obey obedience. Then he explains why. That's illumination. That's how it works. Revelation, obedience, illumination. That's how the Bible's set up. That's how God teaches. That's how God wants to work with you. Our problem is we want to flip the flask too. God speaks. But I have to understand why before I'll do it. We put illumination before obedience. And God says, you need to know that I told you. Right? Parents, because I told you so. Isn't that reason enough when you got a toddler? Well, how, how wise do you think you are compared to God's knowledge? We'd be lucky if we made a toddler well. Right? And so we're saying, God, explain why and I'll do it. How about I told you so? I, I will tell you later, right now, I need to see obedience from you. If we're obedient to what he gives us, he gives us more. To whom much is given, much is expected. But to him is given more. That's what Jesus said. That's the economy of heaven. And we're saying, I want it now, and then I'll go back and obey later. Jesus said, that's not how it works. Are you doing what God showed you? Or do we keep asking him to show us more? Why should he? And we haven't done anything with what he's already shown.